Good morning. Let's open up to Acts chapter 12. This morning, we're uh, looking into Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. Acts 12, beginning in verse 1, all the way to verse 19. If you're there, would you all stand as we receive the word of God? Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Here is the word of God. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the day of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and walked him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and it reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when they came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become a Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he, exa he examined the sentries and ordered 
that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Amen. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time of worship. And we stand before you. We receive your word. And will you explain the word to us? Will you teach us from what we need to learn? Father, I pray that we humbly, obediently, as we open our hearts, Lord, will you instill in us that is needed for us to understand, for us to see the truth for for what it is. Therefore, we would act accordingly. Father, we pray for your will be done. Be gracious to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're continuing our study in the book of Acts, and we are now in chapter 12. And if you recall our journey together, you have seen in the book of Acts uh, the unstoppable, powerful force that the gospel of Jesus Christ truly is. After receiving the Holy Spirit, Peter proclaimed the gospel to the crowd. After the Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, after receiving the Spirit, Peter stood up and he declared the gospel and 3,000 people came to know the Lord. 3,000 in one single message. And a few uh, days later, Peter was able to heal the crippled man and everybody was astonished and he used that opportunity to preach the gospel once again and many more were added to the church. When Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, the leaders of the Jewish community, they did not want them to continue to preach this gospel. Yet, Peter and John, without fear, boldly declare that they will listen to the Lord. They will continue. They will not stop proclaiming the gospel because they were fearless. The gospel of Jesus Christ continued to spread and manifest its power in Jerusalem. And therefore, the church was growing. No matter what the outside forces were trying to do against the church, the church and the gospel could not be stopped. Its power was fully demonstrated, especially especially in chapter 9, we saw uh, how God uh, in Jesus converted Saul, the most notorious and passionate persecutor of the church. Last Sunday, we have looked at the gospel, how it was preached even to the Gentiles in Antioch. And great number of them believed in the gospel and turned to the Lord even amongst the Gentiles. So up to this point, what we have seen is the sheer demonstration of the power of the gospel, which is the power of God. And we're not only going to see it in first 12 chapters, but we're going to see it until the end of this book. Now, in our text this morning, we have another display of God's power by delivering God, delivering his servant, Peter. But before we get into the Peter story, I think we need to look at um, what happened to James. Did you guys catch that in verse 2? 
At the hand of Herod, James was arrested. James was captured and he was killed by the sword. Luke would record that incident in a single verse. Who was James? Key member. Out of that three key members that Jesus took everywhere, Peter, James, and John obviously was one of the twelve. Now he is dead. He was the first to die. Yet, as you can see, in one single verse, compared to Stephen back in chapter 6 and 7, the entire chapter and more was dedicated to his death. But here, for James, just the one single line. James, the brother of John, was killed with the sword. Now, again, as I said before, James was the first apostle to die. Yet, here is the rest of the story. In the single chapter, James dies. But what happened to Peter? Peter was saved. Peter would not die. Why? Because God would choose to save him. God would not let Peter die. So God would rescue Peter, but God would also let James die. In a single chapter, you cannot miss that. And as you see that, what happened to James and what happened to Peter You have to wonder, why? Why would God choose to save Peter? And why would God choose not to save James? Was Peter more valuable? Was Peter had more uh, valuable, impactful things to do? And James was not as valuable as Peter? One could argue. Why would God choose to save Peter, but not James? Because to me, every time when I get to this point, you know, since young, when you read Acts and a story like this, when you realize what happened to James and what happened to Peter, you wonder, is this fair? From our temporal, limited human perspective, is this fair? If God has final say to almost everything in this life, and God had final say about James, God had final say about Peter. God is powerful. Although God is powerful and capable, although he could easily save both of his servants, God, according to his perfect and good will, only say Peter. And in his will, what happened to James? Died. This is a human perspective. But he was welcomed into God's presence, into heaven, way earlier than Peter, way earlier than his own brother, 50 years earlier than his brother John. James went instantly from this place of earth, the place of tear, pain, sorrow, trials, and temptation into a place of joy, eternal joy at that. Now, the question is there, obviously, what happened to Peter, what happened to James, and this is how I understand this passage and what happened to both disciples. God 
is God. He alone is God. What that means, he is sovereign, he is king, he is Lord, and he is also good, he is love, he is just. And what he does is never a mistake. He does all things well according to his perfect and good will. It was God's will to call James home. And it was God's will to save Peter because Peter had more work to do. Although God is good, although God is powerful, he acts according to his will. Yes, we do not understand. From our perspective, it may seem unfair deal for James. But if I have a feeling if we ask James when we see him up in heaven, I don't think he will mind. I don't think he did mind seeing the Lord face to face, spending that time in the kingdom, in the presence of God. You see what I mean? From our perspective, what? God would choose to save Peter because he favors him? One could argue the other because God favors James, spared him and saved him and put him next to him in his presence earlier than Peter and John. What do we understand here? We got to believe who God is. We must trust who God is, that he is good, that he is just, that he is love. And if we understand who God is and believe who God is, you have to trust what he does in our lives. Amen? Now, let's look at Peter's escape here. Overall, this is what I see in this passage, in this story. God is powerful. How powerful is he? He can deliver his servants from humanly impossible situations. If he wills. If he wills. He is so powerful that he could uh, rescue and deliver his servant in humanly impossible places. Now, let's think of it this way. There is no place that God cannot go. Amen? There is no place on earth that God cannot go. There is no prison. There is no place, man-made place, that could shut God out or keep his servants locked in if he wills, if God wills to free them. Once again, God easily could have spared James, just like Peter, if he wills. Because as you see in this story, it was no really no big deal for God to rescue Peter. Now, if you look at this passage, this is pretty secure. I mean, this can be potentially the most secure prison cell uh, the, the king, Herod, could devise here. Maybe Herod heard from Jewish leaders. Earlier chapter, we, see, we saw uh, how Peter and John was arrested and imprisoned, but miraculously, what happened? They escaped the custody. Maybe Herod heard about that. Maybe he didn't want to make that mistake or uh, be a laughingstock of same thing would happen to Peter. So he would assign four squads. Luke says four squads of four soldiers. That's 16 people. Were to guard one man. And he was guarded around the clock. Two soldiers were even chained to the wrist, to the arms. 
of Peter. And that is not all. Inside the prison, two sitting next to Peter, and right at the gate, two sentries standing. And then there are two more outside the gate. And there were two more uh, outside the iron gate leading into the city. But to get Peter out of there, the Lord did not send squad of angels, did he? There's four squads of four soldiers. How many angels did God send to rescue Peter? An angel. One. An angel of the Lord appeared at night. And it was dark, yet as soon as he appeared, the cell lit up. But the guard did not wake up. Now, what was Peter doing? I, it just baffles me every time I read this. What was he doing? This is a night before his execution. Hours, by the way, before his execution. What was he doing? Sleeping. Sleeping. Not praying. Not so desperately, what would happen to me? I mean, I don't know. He was peacefully at sleep. Nicely put. He was sleeping to the point that it, with all that light, angel had to struck him. That's the word. Struck him to wake him up. Get up quickly, the angel said. Dress yourself. Put on your sandals. Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me. These are very common things. Angel, angel really didn't have to say to Peter all these stuff. I mean, get up, dress, put your shoes. Grab your cloak and follow me. That should have been easy, but he was such, you know, he was disoriented. He was sleeping. All of these pretty elementary stuff was uh, commanded to Peter. Now, as they were walking out of the prison, Luke says Peter thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was dreaming. Probably a nice dream about escaping. And when they got to the final locked door, it was like a department store. It's just automatic door, like Walmart door. It opened. It just iron gate flung open. And when they got to the street, immediately now the angel disappeared. And that's when Peter realized what was happening to him. When you look at this, the whole operation was nothing. Like it was nothing for God. It was a piece of cake for God. This was pretty well-guarded, secure prison cell. But for God, which was a humanly impossible thing for us to even think of or even attempt to do, for God, this was nothing. This was a piece of cake. God is that powerful. Whatever you and I think it is impossible, that it cannot be done. You are limiting God. You're questioning his power, his might. Because for God, this is anything on earth that we deem impossible is not impossible for God. Amen? Now, there are some things that we can learn from this story. First, I believe God is most glorified when we are most helpless. He is most glorified when we are most helpless. 
Now, Peter had engineered his own escape. He would have been praised, right? He would be like treated like a Houdini. But what could he say about his part, his part in this escape? I mean, I had to get up. I had to put my shoes on, grab my stuff. I even had to walk. He, the, the angel did not fly me out. I had to walk. That's about the extent of his part in this escape. He got up, he put his clothes on, sandals on, and he walked out. That's all he did, which means there's nothing he did. There's no credit that he will take out of this miraculous event. In verse 17, Peter did not boast about anything about what had happened to him. Only thing that he could say about his own, about the, you know, as a testimony in verse 17, it says, the Lord had brought me out of the prison. I did not bring myself out. The Lord had brought me out of the prison. Now, when you think about this story, what had happened to Peter, Peter's deliverance is a picture of how God saves sinners. Church, before God saved us, we're no different than Peter sitting in a jail cell, chained in darkness. We're sitting in the dark cell of sin, insensitive to our sinful status, not be able to see the light of glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our sins chained us so that we could not escape even if we wanted to. We are under God's sentence of death. But, but, while we were still sleeping, while we were in our desperate, helpless state, what happened? God broke in and God, in His glory, woke us up out of our slumber, caused our chains to fall up so that we could willingly joyfully follow him out of the prison of death. Since our salvation was totally, completely from the Lord in his great mercy, he gets all the glory. He gets all the honor, just like Peter would get. I didn't do anything. The Lord brought me out of this prison. The Lord caused you and rescued you, delivered you out of darkness into the marvelous light of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? What does that mean? He gets all the glory. God is most glorified when we were most helpless. If there is any shred, ounce of pride in you, the gospel is not worth trading your life for. He gets all the glory. He can only uh, receive the praise we had nothing to do with the salvation that we have received. So what do we do? We glorify God. We praise Him for His great grace and mercy on us. The second thing we can see and learn in this story is this. God often waits until the 11th hour, which means last minute, to deliver us so that we will be motivated to pray. Now, the text does not say whether or not the church was praying for James when he was arrested. 
But I assume the church was praying. Because there is no hint in the text that somehow they, the church, was at fault for James's death because of their lack of prayer. But the focus here goes in on the church at the 11th hour for Peter. It was that very night before Herod was planning to execute him. Hours before, what were they doing during that time? They were gathered together and they were praying. It was an all-night desperation effort. Verse 5, it says, Earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. They were praying earnestly. Now this word, Greek word earnest, actually is an athletic term that describes an athlete running, uh, uh, straining every fiber of his muscle to win, to reach that goal. Earnest. It's the same word, Luke chapter 22, verse 44, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Earnest, fervent prayer with everything he had. The sweats of the tear and sweats of blood rolling down his face. Earnest. And that's what the church was doing at the 11th hour, the last minute attempt. Just sheer desperation with urgency they were praying. And I tell you, there is nothing like that kind of prayer. That urgent prayer. 11th hour crisis when that happens to you. What do you do? You get on your knee and you start praying because you realize all the options are gone. You exhausted everything you could potentially do. And you get down with desperation and urgency with everything you got, you pray earnestly. But I encourage you, every time you pray, we should pray like that. Not because it is the last minute, because you exhausted all your options, because there is no other way that you could overcome this particular situation. Every time you go to God, every time you pray, we have to pray earnestly. Now, last week, a tragedy happened in Ellen, Texas, the shopping mall, the outlet mall. I've been there quite a few times myself with my mom, with my parents. Now, the shooter self-claimed white supremacist, which is ironic. His last name is Garcia. He targeted minorities. Hispanics, African-Americans died. And there were uh, four, three now dead, one survived. Four uh, Korean-Americans. And I have a friend who is, now was, part of the uh, small group that family was in. And they were attending a church called New Song Church in uh, Carrollton, Texas. And 37-year-old, 36-year-old um, husband, um, and I don't know wife's age, lawyer, the husband, dentist, the wife, six-year-old boy, um, yeah, nine-year-old boy, a six-year-old boy, and then 
the younger brother, and younger brother, younger son survived because mom shielded him uh, with the semi-automatic bullets coming at her. Another mass shooting. And wow, that was close, and I know the layout. I know exactly where the shooting happened, right? But then when I understood there was Korean-American family that I know secondhand, these were believers, Christians, and young, with the young children on the way. And on Saturday afternoon, they went out to the mall, and they did a little shopping. There's no safe place anymore. You do not know what will happen to you. The reason I say this is we're always living on the 11th hour. If you think about it, you do not know what will happen to you. Everything that we do, everything you could do, could be the last time that you will do here on earth. So when you pray, I encourage you, pray earnestly with desperation and urgency. Pray like you, this will be the last time you pray. Pray for the the issue, the the object, or uh, whatever is going on with sense of urgency that I must get through. Because the truth is, we're always on the brink of disaster or death. The truth is, Satan looks to devour us, take us down every time we give him a slimmer of a chance. Brothers and sisters, at all times, we should be praying. We should be a praying people. God often waits until the 11th hour so that we will be motivated to pray. Guys, when you realize there is something immovable before you, God wants you to pray. It's not immovable for God. So pray. And when you pray, earnestly, with desperation, with urgency, not because something is immovable, but every time you engage God, let's pray earnestly, wholeheartedly. That's something that we could see in this story. Because that's what God desires Maybe the Lord often delays his answer so that we recognize how much we need to turn to him and how earnestly we need to reach out to him. Amen. Finally, God is not limited by the prayer of his people, but he works through our prayers so that he can teach us how we need to depend on him completely. Now, I say that. Because God is not limited by our prayers. Whether we pray earnestly or not, what happens? God's will will prevail. Although church was praying, as we can see here in this text, maybe they were not praying in faith. How do we know this? Because if they had been praying in faith, when Peter knocked on the door and Rhoda recognized Peter's voice. And when she ran back in and shared, Peter is out at the door because exactly what they prayed for was done, answered. 
But what happened? You're out of your mind. That was their first reaction. They were in faith praying, God, rescue our fellow brother Peter. Save him. Deliver him. The very thing that they pray for over like all night long. Answer. Rhoda came in and said, he's at the door. And then what's the reaction? You're crazy. That's his angel. He's not there. So they were praying, but they were not exactly praying in faith. Like they were praying, but this may not be them. Prayer, folks, is a mysterious thing. Why do we need to pray when God already knows our need? The answer is because we will recognize that we are totally dependent on Him. That's why we pray. In our prayer, we assume our proper posture as we pray, which is on our knee, and He is God, we are not, and He's the King, we are His servant. And we come before this Almighty God as humbly as we can, and yet, He will work even if our prayer falls short in the form of faith. Sure, I should believe in him with a strong faith. But even if my faith is weak, he's able to do far more than I can ask or far more than I could imagine. His answers do not depend on any merit in my prayers. You see that? His answer has nothing to do with our fervency. Yet what he does in his sovereign grace and mercy, he desires us to participate in his work. Our prayers are expression of our faith. Our prayers are expression of our dependency. What he desires us when we pray is completely, Lord, it is yours. Your kingdom, your honor, your glory, everything is yours. I'm here to say yes. I'm here to be on my knee for your pray to, uh, for your will to be done. I am nothing. You are everything. I'm depending on you. That's what God desires. God is almighty, as we can see in this story. God can easily deliver us from humanly impossible situations. And as he does, he wants his people to completely, totally dependent on him. He wants us to earnestly, fervently reach out to him. And he wants us to completely depend on him. Do not trust your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. But trust in his wisdom. Trust in his knowledge. Trust God. When he tells you to go, go. Stop and stop. Trust him. Because he is God. He is good. He is just, and He does all things well. That is God. 
That's what I see in this story. I want you to think about that story. Think about Peter. Think about James. Think about God. What he is trying to achieve as he tells the story, as we read the story, what do we see about God? How do we live in light of this relationship we have with God? I pray that you would trust him wholeheartedly, pray to him earnestly, and reach out to him. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are, what you do. God, you truly love us. You truly give us what's best for us. Each and every day, yes, there are things that does not, things that do not go as we plan. As we like, Lord, we would like to see things done in particular ways. But time after time, we realize the world does not operate that way. Time after time, we're reminded our plan needs to be flexible. Time after time, we realize we're not as strong, not as powerful, not as great as we think. In a moment like that, when we realize we are completely outmatched, overwhelmed, help us to remember God, you are powerful, you're almighty, nothing here on earth will overmatch you, overpower your strength. And we are yours, we are your people, and you know what's best for us. So we trust in God, who is good, who is mighty, who is just, and who does everything well according to his good and perfect plan. Whether you say, my time is up here on earth, whether you say, I am just situated here, but I'm going to pick you up and move you. Whether we have to go through certain trials, whether we have to go through difficult, uncomfortable times, God we have to trust that you do not make mistakes. That you do all things well for your glory. Ultimately for your name to be magnified here on earth. Help us to know how great, how awesome, how strong you are. And each and every day when we are faced with impossible situations. May we turn to you with childlike faith. And with that faith, may we reach out to you. Maybe you desire us to uh, earnestly reach out to you in prayer, dearly holding on to you, completely dependent and surrender ourselves to you so that your will be done in our lives. That's what you desire. That's what it means for you to be king in my life, And I pray that we will serve you and treat you 
like the Lord, like the King that you are to us. Father, we thank you for the message. Thank you that you are our God. Pray that as we leave this place and we go back to our homes and schools and workplaces, as we face still with these uh, stressful, unresolved situations in our lives, may we trust you completely and depend on you wholeheartedly. May you bless your people. Go with them, Lord. Go before them. Protect them and guide them. I pray that you will be God in their lives. We thank you so much. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.